Happy music, isn't it? Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our summer series. Good question. My goodness, do we have questions. We can't make it through a day without a why, a where, a when, a how come, how much we long for those question marks to straighten their humped backs, turn into exclamation points, and answer all of our questions. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point, but I have found that questions are really gateways into wonderful conversations and personal discoveries. I've learned that questions are not to be avoided, but to be welcomed, to be considered, and most of all, to be taken to our Heavenly Father. So here's the background. Last year, my publisher had an idea to commemorate 25 years in publishing, would I put together a book that answered the most common questions that I've been asked through the years? I said, you know, that really fits because every sermon series that I've ever preached can be traced back to a time in which somebody said, hey, I got a question. And oftentimes, if you're like me, I think, oh, I wish I'd given that a better answer. And that question seems to fall on the soil and someday turn into a message or series of messages. And we've kept these questions all these years. Sometimes they came in emails, sometimes in letters, sometimes just hand-scribbled notes that people would give me, sometimes conversations on which I had taken notes. And I have this wonderful assistant, Karen Hill, who for many, many years has just kept everything in order. So last summer, we made it a project to go through these boxes and boxes of questions and, and turn that into a book. And we thought that might work for a neat summer series. Good question. So here we are. Now the deal on this is that you get to help select which questions we're going to answer. Each weekend, we have a different theme. The theme for this weekend is hope, hope, how God brings hope into our hopeless world. And so in just a second, I'm going to answer a question that came to us via video from one of our campuses, Journey Fellowship. Also, we have a question I'm going to answer in just a moment that came via Facebook. If you would like this week to go online and vote as to what next week's Facebook question is, you can do that. But for now, I want you to vote by sending, well, not sending it to me, but by sending to a computer somewhere a text, a text. For the first time, and the only time you'll ever hear me say this in a sermon series will be during this one. Everybody take your phone out. <laughs> and we have four questions, and these questions are going to appear on the screen. Four questions. You get to select which two of these four, and you get to vote. Now, here's how you vote. You text 22333. You go to the number 22333, and then you text the question you want. We have four. Question number one, when I doubt God, does he leave me? Question number two, God can't understand my troubles, can he? Question number three, I know God has forgiven me. How do I forgive myself? And question number four, is Jesus' resurrection, oh, the votes are already coming in. Is Jesus' resurrection just a fable? Well, we have an even tie on three votes. Keep voting because we need to break the tie. Thank you. 
Look at that. Okay. There we go. Votes are coming in. Now, if you don't text, if you don't know how to text, maybe next week bring your grandchild with you. <laughs> A few more seconds. Pick two. Well, we've got a strong leader, don't we? Keep going. It's not too late. I can be bought off. For 10 bucks, I'll do whatever you say. Not really. All right. Okay, we got it? Question number three and question number one. Question number one, three will go first. Question number one. Then we'll do the Facebook question. And then we'll do the video question from Journey Fellowship. By the way, as I was going through this box of old questions and, and messages, not just one box, but several boxes, you know what else I found? I found some wonderful jokes. Some jokes. Some of which I don't think I've ever told you. And so I'm also, I know you'll be so excited to hear this. Each week, I'm going to share with you one of my favorite jokes. I cannot promise it has anything to do with the message. I cannot promise it will offer anything to your life spiritually. But they're funny. And so this couple was celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary. They got married when they were 20 years old, and so they were 60 years of age, celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary. And God was so proud of them that he sent a message to them that on this day, I will answer any prayer you offer. Well, the wife got very excited, and she said, God, I've always wanted to go on a Caribbean cruise. Poof, poof, in her hand, two passages. Two tickets to go on a Caribbean cruise. Well, the husband's watching this and he gets wide-eyed and thinks, whoa, this is a great opportunity. He looks at his wife, he looks up at God and says, God, you know, I've always wanted a wife who's 30 years younger than I am. <laughs> Poof, he was 90 years old. <laughs> I knew you ladies would like that one. So question number one, how do I forgive myself? I do think it's interesting, I do think it's interesting that we find it easier to believe in the resurrection of Christ than we do that Christ would forgive us. That's been consistent in my conversations with people. That for some reason, the question of how can I believe that Jesus vacated the grave is asked less than the question, how can I believe that God is willing to forgive me? Why do you think that is? Maybe it's because we make so many mistakes. You know, before we even get to the breakfast table, most of us have thought a thousand thoughts we'd rather not think. Can't get through a week without doing something we're embarrassed we did. There's no doubt in my mind that some of you are looking back over this last week thinking, my goodness, if I could only have that hour over... If I can only have that conversation over, if I can only have an opportunity to exercise more self-control, we disappoint ourselves so often. How much more then do we disappoint God? At least that's our rationale. 
And we wonder, have I exhausted God's forgiveness? Have I exhausted God's forgiveness? How do I forgive myself? When that question surfaces, you may not know this, but you have entered officially into the court of shame. The court of shame. Look over into the juror's box, and there you will see 12 jurors. Each one of them is you. Your face, 12 times. Because we are our own worst and harshest critics. Others will forgive us before we do. And we look at ourselves, and we see ourselves pointing a finger at us, saying, don't you know better? Can't you do better? God can't forgive you. Now, you need to know in that moment that Satan, you're engaged at that point in spiritual warfare. Because Satan loves nothing more than to deactivate Christians by rendering them full of doubt about God's forgiveness. Because, let me tell you, there's something powerful about a Christian who trusts in the grace of Christ. That Christian is emboldened. That Christian is joyful. That Christian may stumble, but they know they will not fall. And they trust God's grace more than they trust their works. Ultimately, that's where all of us must turn. And that is, we have to trust more God's hold on us than our hold on Him. We have to trust more God's hold on us than our hold on Him. Our tendency is to think it's up to me to stay close to God. And we use language like, are you right with God? Are you following God? And that's appropriate language. But we forget that really it's God who's holding on to us. It's God who has taken a hold of us. It's God who is securing to us. And He who is able to keep that which we have entrusted to Him until that final day is trustworthy, the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul also is the one who told us what Jesus told him when Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you. Maybe that's it. Maybe down deep we wonder if there is sufficient grace. Most of us have bounced a check. We know what the phrase insufficient funds means. And we wonder if sometime we might send so much that the check bounces. We think, well, maybe God just kind of run out of grace. Many years ago, in fact, the first year that we lived in San Antonio, back in 1988, I went to a men's clothing store to purchase a jacket because I didn't own one. We'd been living in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Nobody wore sports coats. And I thought as a preacher I needed a sports coat. So I went and to buy one. I was doing, you know, what you do. You're thumbing through the clothing. And I noticed the gentleman next to me uh, was, was very familiar. I thought, I know that guy. Where have I seen him? And I kept, you know, looking out of the corner of my eye and Finally, I just got up the courage and I said, Sir, I think I, I've seen you before. He said, Well, my name is Red McCombs. He said, I own car dealerships and, and I own the San Antonio Spurs. At that time, he owned the Spurs, if you remember. Later on, he owned the Minnesota Vikings. I said, Well, I know you then. Just, you know, just recognize your name and your face. And we had the most delightful conversation. It was the beginning of a friendship that's lasted all these many years. He told me about his brother, who at that time was a minister in Memphis. And he said, uh, when he found out that I was a minister, he said, well, I've got a soft spot for ministers. My brother is one, and, and his brother has since died and uh, served the church there for many years. And he's just had a heart for ministry, uh, Mr. McCombs had. And 
I told him why I was here and I was new to town and he just gave me such a kind welcome. Anyway, it was just a, a very pleasant conversation. He finished up his shopping, he left. I finished up my shopping, I picked out a jacket and I took it up to the cash register. And as I was just about to give a credit card or write a check, I can't remember, but as I was about to pay for it, the guy said, oh no, this has been paid for. Mr. McCombs paid for your coat. My first thought was, I should have gotten some slacks. <laughs> Not really. What I did not think was, I don't think he can afford this. I didn't. Of all the thoughts I had standing there, I did not think, he can't afford this. There's no way he can pay for this. I don't know, and I still don't know how much you know, he's worth, but I know he can afford a sport coat, for crying out loud. It never occurred to me that he couldn't support his gesture of kindness. I'm, I just believed he could. Scripture is resounding with this message, and that is that our Heavenly Father is affluent in grace. He's affluent in grace. And when you go to your Heavenly Father, and you say, Lord, could you forgive me? Could you forgive me? He does not turn to his angels and say, how's that a grace account? Is it getting low? I think, sorry Max, I think we're just about, I'm sorry, you're overdrawn. Listen, that, that, that will never be said about you. Because he is abundant in grace. He comes bringing grace upon grace. The scripture teaches in Ephesians 2 that he is rich in mercy. He is affluent in mercy. So you can trust that grace. His grace is sufficient for you. So, are you dealing with this and wrestling with this question, can God forgive me for what I did? Yes, He can. And yes, He has. And the fact that you're wrestling with that is a sign that the Holy Spirit is within you, wanting to draw you closer to your Heavenly Father. What you did was wrong. What I did was wrong. We have sinned. We are in need not of a ladder to climb our way to heaven. We are in need of a life preserver. No, we're in need of a life saver to jump into the water and pull us out. And we have one in Jesus Christ. Amen. Question number two seems similar uh, in some ways. Let's pop it back up on the screen. The, the second question, when I doubt, does God leave me? It's a similar question. And, I, and, and there's a similar answer, and that is trust less in your hold on God and more in God's hold on you. I'm going to start a verse and see if you can finish it. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow. How did you already know that? Psalm 23 and verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me most of the days of my life. Did I, did I misquote it? Well, I'm so glad you're here to correct me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me every other day. On the good days. On Sundays. Surely 
goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So on the days that I doubt, does goodness and mercy follow me? Yes. Because God has handcuffed himself to you in love and he owns the only key. Goodness and mercy shall follow you. What a precious promise this is in the 23rd Psalm. Surely, David says, surely, not maybe, not possibly, not a hope, but with certainty, with certainty, surely goodness and mercy, goodness because we're needy, mercy because we're sinners, goodness because we need help, mercy because we need forgiveness. So they will follow me. Remember this is in the context of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so David is describing how God leads his flock. Goodness and mercy shall follow us. We have a shepherd out in front of us. We have his goodness and mercy behind us. They're like the rear guards, the watchdogs, the sheepdogs that come up behind the flock. And we start waving or wavering off the path. Here come the goodness and mercy dogs to get us back on. God is good to me. God is merciful to me. You look over your shoulder right now and you will see God's goodness and you will see God's mercy. You look ahead and you'll see God as your shepherd guiding you. He goes in front of you. He comes behind you. Goodness and mercy shall follow me. Shall follow me all the days of my life. Does that mean the days that I'm angry with God? Yes. Does that mean the days that I deny God? God was with Peter when Peter denied God. Does that mean the days that I question Jesus? Jesus was with Thomas and Thomas questioned Jesus. Trust less in your hold on God and more in God's hold on you. Listen, you will go through times in which you will stumble. You will go through times in which you will doubt but God has hold on you. Do not let Satan come in during those times and say, okay, he's written you off because you questioned him. Don't do that. Don't listen to that. You camp on Psalm 23. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. When I was six years of age, I ran away from home. I, did anybody else in here run away from home when you were a kid? I ran away from home. I was probably gone for 20 minutes. What I remember is packing a brown paper bag with what I was going to need for survival. I had had enough of Jack Lakato, thank you, and all of his rules, and I was going to run away from home. Now, I, I wish I knew what I put in that brown paper bag, but I just remember walking down the alley behind our house in Odessa, Texas, where we were living at the time, just, you know, just little angry boy, you know. Had you stopped me there in the alley and said, now do you have a father? I very well might have said no. No. I'm on my own. I'm independent. Thank you very much. Had you found my father at that very moment, who I'm sure knew of my prodigal path, most dads know those things. Had you asked him, do you have a son? He would have said yes. Stubborn one. A disobedient one. But yes, I have a son. Because even though I doubted him, even though I left him, he did not leave me. 
for several reasons. Number one, he understands that it's tough sometimes to be a kid. Number two, because he's patient. Number three, because he knows that we don't like the rules that our parents have. And then number four, and this is important, he really didn't have a choice. DNA, our DNA was the same. He couldn't not be my father anymore. For those very same reasons, your heavenly father does not leave you, even though you may doubt him. He knows it's not easy to be a human being. He knows it's hard to walk by faith and not by sight. He knows that it's a world, that we live in a world that's really filthy and dirty and full of temptations. And he knows that we get discouraged by death and disease and debt and some of the difficulties of the world. But most of all, if you are in Christ, you have been born into a relationship with him. And spiritually, you are bound to him and he is bound to you. This isn't a deal that comes and goes depending on how you behave. It's, it's God's covenant with you. And His covenant is what keeps us, not our performance that keeps us. And so maybe you've wandered away. You need to know your Heavenly Father still has a plate at the table for you, just like my dad did. We have a great Facebook question. Here it is. How can I cope with change? How can I cope with change? How many of you are going through some kind of change in your life right now? Yeah. Uh, how many of you are finding yourselves a bit stressed out by the change? Yeah. How many of you are looking for that time in your life when there's no more change? <laughs> it ain't going to come, is it? It ain't going to come. And that's one of our problems because we think that we're going to someday get to the point where all this change is going to stop. Folks, it doesn't. Those of you who are old and gray, tell me. It doesn't, does it? Tell us young people. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it doesn't. What's that old line that if you, if you don't want any change, go to a soda machine. It's the only place you <laughs> find no change. Everywhere else there is change. Open your Bibles for just a moment to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said these words to his followers. And he was preparing them for change. John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled, verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Now these words have comforted Christians for thousands of years. But the first hearers of these words found little comfort. What they heard Jesus saying was, I'm going away. I'm going away. Here they've been following Jesus for three years. The disciples had given up everything to follow him. And now Jesus is saying, prepare yourself for a big change. I'm going away. But down deep, you know where I'm going. And Thomas, with no small dose of exasperation, says in verse 6, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? It sounds to me like a person who's frustrated with change, who doesn't want change. We're, we, we resist change because change is actually an 
entryway into the unknown. The reason we don't like change is because we don't know what change is going to bring about. And so we sometimes try to resist change by trying to control life. And we can be what we often call a person, a control freak. Want to control everything, manage everybody, uh, not let any surprises. We become allergic to anything new. We want to freeze frame the world right where it is. Then we get frustrated because we fail at that. We become very hard to live with. I think the better approach is to recognize that change comes and that change is used by God. It was necessary for Jesus to depart from the disciples, to be crucified for our sins, to be raised from the dead, to defeat our sin and defeat our grave. But Thomas and, and the disciples couldn't quite get their mind around this. So here's what Jesus said to Thomas and the others. Look down in verse 16. I pray the Father and he will give you another helper he may abide, that he may abide with you forever. What's Jesus' solution for change? His solution is, I am with you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. I am with you. I will never leave you. I am with you. Sometimes we interpret the presence of change as the absence of God. Just the opposite. God has promised that he will be with us. He has sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. So in times of change, you lean into him and you trust him. And do not assume that this change is necessarily a bad thing. I received an email a few weeks back. And I want to just share one paragraph from it with you. Uh, Beth Bezier, a member of our congregation, moved here recently from Central Florida. In 2004, Central Florida experienced three consecutive hurricanes. And she was in a place where all three hurricanes passed. And so she was describing what that was like. In, in the middle of her email, she had this little paragraph, or this story. She said, our hometown was located in the center of where all three storms intersected. So we experienced the full force and effects of those storms. One day after the second hurricane had passed, and just before the third was predicted to hit, I looked out my window and noticed that one of the limbs from our large oak tree was now dangling over the driveway. As I looked closer, trying to figure out how we could get the limb down before the next storm, I noticed a scurry of activity. As I watched the limb move and shake, I saw a mama squirrel intently building her nest in that limb. She was working so hard, carrying little twigs and leaves and other materials onto that branch, forming and shaping her nest, chattering at the other squirrels as she worked. At first, I didn't think anything about it, but then it hit me. In a few days, a storm would come. And most likely, her nest and possibly her babies would be blown away. So I went to the garage. I got the tallest ladder I could find, a big broom, and proceeded to beat the heck out of that limb. My thinking was, if I could knock the nest loose and disturb the mama squirrel enough, she would stop building this nest and move on to a sturdier location. So I beat and pounded and she squealed and chattered, probably hurling little squirrel four-letter words at me. <laughs> While I was trying to explain to her that a big storm was coming and that her nest wasn't safe and that I was only doing this for her own good. 
I could see what was ahead. She could not. The disruption was for her best. I managed to knock down that nest. While I don't know what the little mama eventually did, I'm hoping she built on a more secure limb. Now you can relate to that squirrel. Because you felt your limb shaking. You felt your nest shaking. You've done what you thought was right and good only to feel your world shaking. And our immediate thought typically is, oh man, either God's not here or God's upset with me because he wouldn't let this happen. If God was God, he would not let this happen. What if God is doing this for your own good? What if God is disturbing your world to get you out of a limb that's about to be swept out into a storm? What if, what if he really does love you then? What if he can really see what you cannot? What if he knows what you do not? What if instead of panicking or turning into a control freak, you take this as an opportunity to learn to pray, to trust, to breathe deeply, to rest, and say, okay, God, I know this isn't fun, but I'm going to trust you this time. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to turn to some false medication to take care of me. I'm not going to run and escape from the world. I'm just going to be faithful one day at a time. And someday, Lord, please tell me why this happened. I'd like to know before I die, but if not, I know when I get to heaven I will. You will. Someday you will know. Maybe not before you get home. And I really don't want to minimize the discussion of change because sometimes... Our change is a result of terrible challenges like cancer or death or unemployment. And I know those are difficult. But I also know that the purpose of our life is not just to be comfortable in this life, but to prepare us for the next life. That's the hope God gives us. And that is He uses this life to equip us for the next. And sometimes He equips us with blessings but sometimes he equips us with burdens. And during those times of burdens, may he equip you for what you need. We, we're running out of time, but I want to get this one last question in because it's a video question that comes from Journey Fellowship. Look to the screen for just a moment. Before Jesus came to earth, he knew he would return to heaven. So what did he give up when he came to earth? Before Jesus came to the earth, he knew he would eventually return to heaven. So what's the sacrifice in Jesus coming to earth? I think that's an interesting question. What did Jesus give up if he knew that someday he would go back to heaven? This is an impossible question for us to answer because none of us have experienced heaven. We have not. So it's hard for us to know what he gave up even for those 33 years. We try to imagine what he gave up. Jesus becoming flesh, would that be kind of like you becoming a mosquito? Are you becoming a gnat? Are you becoming a roach? You know, quite honestly, for he who is holy to enter a world of sin and filth, for he who is timeless to enter a world that is time-bound, what was that like? I think that's a pretty major sacrifice. For him to give up equality with God and to become a servant of humanity, what was that like? And most of all, for he who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. See, he never knew sin. 
until he was hanging on the cross. And there he felt the consequences of all of our sins. The shame, the embarrassment, the guilt. He felt it all. And heaven treated him like heaven treats sinners. Those who have rebelled against God. He took our place. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt a full sense of forsakenness and distance from God. So that you need never say those words. I don't know what all he gave up, but I think it's more than any of us deserve, don't you?